We thank you for the inerrancy of your word. We thank you for this example of David and his um, preparations for the temple. And we pray that as we look at this, even though it does not apply directly to us, we pray that we could learn the principles that would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, this is the second lesson of the winter quarter. The title is David Prepares for the Temple. And we will be in First Chronicles 22, verse 2, through 29, verse 20. Big chunk, but it's not 22 chapters, which is what we did last week. So, you know, David was very anxious to build a temple for the Lord. And we, we learned, and it'll be reiterated, that the, the Lord uh, said no. He wasn't to do that. There was too much blood on his hands. But he persisted with um, the preparations for the temple. Our first section, A, for those online, is David anticipates the temple, and that is going to be chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles, verses 2 through 10. Can I get somebody to read that section? So, what are we seeing here? Yeah, David was very hot for this temple. Mm -hmm. The Lord told him no, but he was going to do as much as he could to prepare for worship. And um, so David is a good example for us, isn't he? To prepare for worship. This is the first of four Jewish temples, two in the past, two in the future. This first one is the Solomonic Temple. And the Solomonic Temple, when it was dedicated, was filled with a Shekinah glory, right? Um, And uh, in the, uh, the Babylonian siege then, Ezekiel saw that the glory of the Lord left the Solomonic Temple. And then the uh, returnees came back from Babylon. They built the second temple. Zerubbabel was the leader of that project. And that's the temple that Jesus came to. You know, Herod had enlarged and beautified the temple. Jesus came to that. So first temple destroyed by the Babylonians, second temple destroyed by the Romans. The Jews now are very keen to build the third temple. The third temple built in unbelief out of nationalistic pride, and that temple is destined for the Antichrist to desecrate. That is the temple that will be in place in the uh, tribulation period. And then the millennial temple. So temples two and three don't have the glory of God. The millennial temple is going to be huge, a mile square, and Jesus will be there, and the glory of God will reside in that temple. I cannot wait to see that. Anyway, but um, it's very exciting in the times we live in to read from Israel and read about how they're prepared, they're ready, they're training their priests. You know, they're looking for the red heifer to the unblemished red heifer to dedicate their temple, all in unbelief. And so we live in very exciting times. But in verse 2, David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. Who are these foreigners? The Jews, General Joshua, to go in and annihilate them. Well, they they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And so this is from Joshua 9, verse 27. This is when the Gibeonites came to Joshua, saying they were from a long, long ways away. And uh, 
Joshua forgot to pray about it before deciding to take their treaty and learned that they had tricked him. So instead of killing them, because they'd made an oath to them, says Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. So instead of killing them, they enslaved them. And Solomon talks about using slave labor also, forced labor. So, and I think they were people that had been left in the land. That was disobedience. When Israel went into the land, they part, you know, they partially obeyed. They did not completely obey. Instead of executing them, when they got the better hand, they would enslave them. But then when they were disobedient, the Lord would use the Canaanite to, dis, you know, to discipline Israel, right? And this is from Judges 15.11. So Judges 15, 11. Oh, this is the time of Samson. It says, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. So at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel as God disciplining the you know disobedient Israelites. Then in verse 3, David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed. So iron was scarce in the time of David. And we saw that in uh, 1 Samuel around 13. 1 Samuel 13, the uh, iron implements that the Israelites had were, they got them from the Philistines. They had to go to the Philistines to sharpen them. And so the Philistines had an advantage. Iron became more available after David conquered the Philistines, which he has done here. Now, secular anthropology says that there's the Bronze Age followed by the Iron Age, right? And actually in our quarterly, they quote secular Archaeology and anthropology says archaeologists call this historical era Iron Age One, during which Iron Age, Iron's use was new and revolutionary. I don't think that's true. The reason I don't think that's true is Genesis four. Remember, this is pre-flood, and this was in the line of Cain, eighth generation in the line of Cain, the son of one of the first uh, polygamists of the first polygamists, Lamech. His mother was Zillah. She gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. Eight generations from Adam, metallurgy was invented, you know. Um, so secular anthropology does not give credit to the early, early man. And they, you know, they depict them as cavemen and things like that. Think, no writing, they didn't know have fire, things like that. That is incorrect. So then verse 4 talks about timbers of cedar logs beyond number for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber. So the Phoenicians, who were in Tyre and Sidon, were friendly with David and Solomon. And, uh, you know, those are the famed cedars of Lebanon that were, they, they were very good lumberjacks, you know, and they would uh, supply the cedar for the temple. And then verses 5 through 8 is David's charge to the young Solomon. 
My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent. You know, we saw that, I believe it's in Ezra, when they were beginning to build the second temple. People were cheering, but the old men were crying because they had seen Solomon's temple and its glory, you know. And uh, the second temple was a far cry from that. And then in this uh, passage is the, the reason God gives that David was not the one to build it because he had been a warrior and he had killed uh, many people. So he was not the one to build the temple. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that, uh, was that sinful to go to war? Yeah, I don't think it was sinful. Not specifically. It says that you have been a man of war and have shed much blood so much blood on the earth before me you know man is God's image bearer I mean that is why God instituted the death penalty for murder which is still intact although it's not used extremely rarely nowadays but it's still intact under the Noahic covenant because it's an affront to kill an image bearer to God himself. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we need to be careful talking like this because, I mean, the Lord told Israel to annihilate the Canaanites. That was not sin. That was obeying God and God using them as an instrument of judgment. So the Lord said, no, not you. Your son will be the one, and he will be a man of peace. So and then verses 9 and 10, we get a repetition of the Davidic covenant, right? which we talked about last time. A son will be born to you. He shall be a man of rest. And the Lord told him what his name should be. He will build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel. Now he skips to the Messiah forever, forever. So that is the Davidic covenant. Okay, let's go on to section B. David challenges the leaders. This is verses 11 through 19 of chapter 22. So verses 11 and 12. Now my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. That reminds me of Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So the Lord has to be in something for it to succeed. And then another one that this passage reminds me of is Joshua 1 and verse 8. This is our former pastor's favorite verse. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So that is interesting. You know, we teach the three phases of salvation. Phase one, justification. Deliverance from hell by simple trust in the Lord. That's it. One step. Simple trust in the Lord. Is that what this is talking about? Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate. No, that is not what it's talking about. That is phase two, right? Phase two, we, you know, in my case, I was 
transferred from a destiny to hell to heaven at the age of seven years old. And then I went along and kind of did my own thing for another 25 years. Okay? But the second phase of our salvation is called sanctification, and that is the learning to use the resources that God has given us, which is our new nature and the Holy Spirit. And um, that is how you do it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And so when the Lord tells you something through his word, you say, oh, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> and you submit. And that is how you grow spiritually and how you mature. And what does it say? For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. You know, if you want to have success, listen to what the Lord says and submit to it. And his spirit will give you the power to do it. He will not order something from you that he does not pay for. Somebody else said that, and it's, I think it's great. You know, if the Lord wants you to do something, he will empower you to do it. And if he wants you to stop something, he will empower you to stop it also. So, so we can go to heaven unrewarded, and that is grace. And that is awesome. But we want to go as rewarded as possible. Then verse 13, uh, David says exactly the same thing. At the end of verse 12, he says, uh, the Lord give you discretion and understanding, give you charge, so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God, then you will prosper. That's exactly what um, was told to Joshua. If you're careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses. So, so he's taking him back to the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, we do not go to the Mosaic Covenant. We go to the law of Christ found in the epistles and, you know, in uh, the upper room discourse also. is. There's a lot of confusion about that. Yeah, he says, be strong and courageous. And then he says, do not fear. Now, how many times does God tell us not to fear? We've talked about this before. <laughs> yeah, it's like one for every day of the year, right? I mean, if you just, if you just read through your Bible and you're looking out for that phrase, do not fear, it comes up a lot. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It's because we have the Lord with us, so things don't scare us, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a difference. There is a difference. Okay, so she's an immature believer. Um, maturity gives you that boldness, you know, because when you're in sin... What's happening in your mind? You f you feel like the sword of Damocles is hanging over your head, don't you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're in sin, unrepentant, you feel like somebody's going to get you any time, and that is reality. You know, I mean, that is reality. You are going to be disciplined if you don't turn back. You know, the Lord will discipline His own too, and so. Um, yeah, but if we're in fellowship with the Lord, there's no need for fear. Exactly. Discipline is good for us when we need it. I think the discipline drives us to discipleship, you know. It did for me. Yeah, it did for me, you know, because I, I was, you know, I was to the point of agnosticism, and the discipline drove me to discipleship because I just crumbled, and I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it your way. I hadn't even thought about 
the Lord or God or anything for years. And uh, so I'm grateful for that discipline. But yeah, if you're in fellowship with the Lord, and that's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important for us as believers, you know, if we sin, no, if we confess our sins, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and then we have fellowship again. Yes, the the if, if, right, the if-then um, construction is part of the sanctification process, but not justification. Justification, believe in the Lord, you're saved. What a, what a wonder that is. That's why we can, we can go through our sanctification, our following of the Lord, and we mess up frequently and often. Hopefully a little less as time goes on. <laughs> so, um, but we have this safety net. We're saved. We're going to heaven. And that is a thing to rejoice about. Verses 14 through 16, you know, David is enumerating the materials, 750,000 pounds of gold, 750 million pounds of silver, and also many workmen are available to Solomon to do this. Then verses 17 through 19, David challenged the leaders to help Solomon as the Lord had given peace to the nation through David, therefore there was nothing to distract them from this project. All right, now, the quarterly skips over five chapters. That's good for us, guys, because those chapters are long, long lists of Hebrew names. <laughs> and so... <laughs> but what it talks about basically are the divisions of priests there are 24 now this is interesting the divisions of priests 24 divisions the divisions of singers and musicians there are 24 divisions of singers and musicians the gatekeepers the treasurers didn't give any specific numbering of them but then there's 12 divisions of military with 24,000 per division. And each of the 12 would be active one month of the year. So David was very organized. And I'm especially interested in this uh, divisions of priests 24. Because if you go to Revelation chapter 4, there's some elders there. And there are various uh, debates about the identity of these elders. I have one very good commentary by Robert Thomas, who says this is a special class of angels. I have another commentary by John Walverd, who says that this is the church. And I do favor John Walverd's interpretation and the reason being is that, you know, this 24 divisions of priests, there were thousands of priests in Israel. There were too many to serve all the time. And so they, they had these 24 divisions, and they would take their turn when their division came up. And that's how Zechariah was in the temple when the angel came to him, because it was his turn in his division. And so the 24 divisions represented the entirety of the priesthood and I believe that is it's similar with these 24 elders around the throne of God prior to the tribulation period with crowns on their heads which indicate 
the crown of reward and the white robes on so they're rewarded they're elders um, and they're 24 and I believe this represents the church in heaven prior to the tribulation period who has been rewarded already at the Bema Seat judgment but if you look through this uh, this passage in Chronicles the Lord himself gave these divisions the Lord told David to do this which is fascinating okay so in Unless we have something else, we've just covered five chapters. <laughs> and we'll start in chapter 28 and verse 1. Verse 1, here there are military, tribal, and cabinet officials commemorating Solomon's succession to the throne. And this is David's formal and public charge to Solomon to build the temple. Uh, back in chapter 22, it was a smaller group that David was speaking with. Here it is David announcing his son's succession to the throne. <clears throat> and then again, verses 2 and 3, David speaks of his desire for him to build the temple and God's reasoning about why he should not do that, which we've already discussed. And then he speaks as the ark, as the footstool of God, which is interesting. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So in Exodus 25 and 22, it says, this is the Lord speaking, there I will meet with you, he's talking to Moses, and from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So he was on, his, you know, visible presence was on the mercy seat, like a footstool. Then in Numbers 7 and verse, no, I'm sorry, it's 7 verse 89, not 7 verse 8. Seven verse, number 7 verse 89. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherry beam, so he spoke to him. So this imagery of the Ark being the footstool for God makes sense because he spoke from just above the Ark, you know, this visible presence, this Shekinah glory, which is fascinating. Then verse 4, God has chosen Judah. Oh, well... Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me, David, from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. So God chose David, and this was actually prophesied earlier by Jacob in um, Genesis 49. This is why the Bible is a supernatural book. The Bible tells the end from the beginning. Many of these endings have passed already, and so we can see that it is literally fulfilled zillions of times. And so if you don't believe in the Bible, you're foolish. There's no other religious book or any other kind of book that is like this. But anyway, this is Jacob talking to his sons. Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
So Jacob, way back in Egypt, said that Judah from Judah would be the ruler. Now, we know that the first king of Israel was not from Judah, was he? Saul. Anybody remember what tribe Saul was from? Saul was from Benjamin. Right. Now, I don't know if I'm right, but I have a theory about this. <laughs> I have a theory about this. What was the thing that triggered God to tell Samuel to anoint Saul as king? There was something that Israel had done that triggered God to tell Samuel to do this. They asked for a king, like all the other nations around them, right, which was a sin. God was to be their king. They were to, you know, and they'd just finished the period of the judges where they did okay, and then they sinned, and then one of these Canaanites would rule over them and abuse them, and then they'd repent, and then it started over again, you know. Seven times they went through this. And then finally they got to a point where they said, we just want a king like everybody else. That was a sin. So God gave them a king as punishment. <laughs> and that king was Saul. And, you know, Saul, I do believe Saul was saved. I do believe, you know, I think he prophesied, you know, he he knew the Lord, but did he, his... Uh, second phase of his salvation was pretty sketchy. <laughs> he very frequently, he never did what the Lord wanted him to do. You know, he was impatient. He wouldn't wait. And uh, finally, the Lord brought maximum divine discipline on Saul after he consulted a medium. And he was executed by the Philistines. But the Lord used Saul to train David because Saul was chasing him around trying to kill him for years. That's my theory, and I, I don't know if that is correct, but I think it makes sense that that is why the first king of Israel was from Benjamin and not from Judah. And then verse 7, I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. Okay, now in Deuteronomy, there's a prophecy. This was before Israel had a king, but the Lord knew they would get a king. And so he gave them instructions about how the king was to act. And in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19, it says, Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So the kings of Israel were to go to the priest as the, to look at the scroll, and they themselves were to copy it by hand, take it home, and read it every day. And that is how they were to govern. And... There was a book written much later called Lex Rex. Has anyone ever heard of this? I think the author was Samuel Rutherford. It was around the time of the American Revolution or just before. It's before your time. Yeah. So is the Bible. <laughs> and we're reading this way before our time. Lex Rex means the law is king. You know, most kings feel that they are above the law. They create the law. They do, they do what they want. Not so in Israel. Not so in Israel. In Israel, the king was to write a copy of the law and to be under the law. Okay, Lex Rex was the principle of the United States. 
No one is above the law, right? Who've, how many times have you heard that said? Well, right now, quite a few who are above the law. I'd say the president is, seems to be above the law. His son seems to be above the law. You know, things work right when Lex Rex is in effect. Office of prophet arose with the kings, didn't it? The prophets arose with the kings. Why? Because the kings didn't obey this command in general. They put themselves above the law. Right. So that's one of those if-then promises. That's our problem, right? Pride. If you read through looking for the word proud or something like that versus humble, the Lord hates pride. That was Satan's sin. And we are very prone to it. And so, but that, what, what a wonderful promise if you obey my law. If you submit. You know, in, in our age, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is urging you urging us to submit to the law of Christ. We say, okay, because you say so, I'll do that. There will be tremendous blessing in real time, not just in heaven, right now. There will be tremendous blessing. So that is why we, we look at this stuff, and we that is the principle, you know, that we want to learn. We want to mature, to be our faith to be like Abraham was when he's willing to sacrifice his son. That is how strong we want our faith to be. If the Lord says it, it's right. I'm going to do it. Chapter, we're on uh, section D. David gives Solomon the temple plans, verses 28, 11 through 21, and I'll read that piece. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God and for the storehouses of the dedicated things, also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites. See, that that's what I was talking about before. So these plans for the divisions God gave him. So also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all the utensils of service in the house of the Lord, for the golden utensils, the weight of gold for all utensils for every kind of service, for the silver utensils, the weight of silver for all utensils for every kind of service, and the weight of gold for the golden lampstands and their golden lamps with the weight of each lampstand and its lamps, and the weight of silver for the silver lampstands with the weight of each lampstand and its lamps according to the use of each lampstand, and the gold by weight for the tables of showbread for each table, and silver for the silver tables, and the forks, the basins, and the pitchers of pure gold, and for the golden bowls with the weight for each bowl, and for the silver bowls with the weight for each bowl, and for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, and gold for the model of the chariot, even the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this, said David, that's a lot of stuff. All this the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. 
Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear. There's that phrase. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Now behold, there are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God, and every willing man of any skill will be with you in all the work for all kinds of service. The officials also and all the people will be entirely at your command. Now when you read through that list, what does that make you think? That's a lot of stuff. Very expensive. Mm -hmm. And did David have to come up with these ideas? Not a one. Yeah. It was directed by the Lord. The Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. Yeah, the priests and then the Levites. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that corresponds with us, right, and our gifts. Not everyone is gifted in every way. We each have a gift. So we do not have to make up things to do for the Lord. He has his own ideas. <laughs> and he will tell us what he would like us to do you know and usually you know in my own experience he gives it's through reading his word and I think okay am I and sometimes it is in times of prayer I will get urgings Mm -hmm. and you check the word to make sure that those urgings are actually from him and not from yourself and uh, if they are consistent then go ahead and you will have the power to do it because the Holy Spirit will be your power. So our role is not to lead God. Our role is to follow God. And many, many times, many, many, many times as we follow the Lord, we will find ourselves at odds with the culture. We are a countercultural cultural bunch <laughs> and proud to be so, Okay even though the Lord doesn't like pride. But he says that if you boast, boast in the Lord. So that's what we're doing. We're boasting in the Lord and his values. So also, and I've mentioned this before, the Spirit had also inspired these divisions of the priests and things. So the Lord did exactly the same thing for the tabernacle in Moses' time as he gave him the plans. Exactly. So real quickly, I know we're running out of time. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 20 is not covered in the quarterly, but what it covers is God, or David, I'm sorry, David encouraged the people to help Solomon. They gave freely, generously, and eagerly to the project, as also the former Israelites had for the tabernacle. And then David gave a prayer of praise and thanks. So the way they gave was also a a good principle for us they gave freely without being coerced they gave generously it was their own idea you know there was no forcing but they gave more than enough for the project to be completed and that is how we should we should give as we discuss it with the lord with our provision he has supplied to us It should be our own decision, not forced. Amen.